Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme first and foremost today by Jill Tate. Jill is the owner and director of Absolute Image, an advanced specialist firm in aesthetic treatments. Jill, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Hi, Scott. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, Could I just begin with a huge heartfelt thank you to the NHS and all of its Mm. staff for all of their efforts and sacrifices um, to get us through the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, They're all our heroes. You know, they're doing what they do day in and day out to protect us. And uh, they know the risks involved. Um, But I also think the armed forces, for their involvement, they always go without a mention, I feel. Um, But also to the delivery services, you know, the shop workers, we really appreciate all that they've done um, to keep the country on track. So I think a huge thank you to all of those has to be first and foremost. Of course, all of the uh, the frontline and uh, key workers um, that have sort of kept on going during this time have really shown a triumph in the face of adversity, really brought out the best in themselves to keep things ticking over and keep vital services going. Um, and they all deserve all of the, uh, the thanks in the world, of course, because it's been an immensely challenging, stressful, sensitive time for many, not just families, but also businesses, communities as well. And in terms of the uh, the business world, many have suffered during the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic from the challenges that it has brought about. But for yourself and for Absolute Image, Jill, just how difficult has it been adapting to the last few weeks and months? Yeah, it has been difficult. Um, you know, clients, um, first and foremost, they want to have the treatments um, bombarded, you know, with, with with calls and texts and messages, you know, when will you return to work? But until it was deemed safe by government, you know, I just couldn't open the business. So it's been quite difficult. Obviously, no salary coming in, a small um, a small furlough, but most business owners like myself pay themselves in dividends. So, you know, there hasn't been a dividend, so very, very little coming in. So it is quite difficult to manage, but we all understand and we know, you know, why we're in this situation. Um, and luckily today, um, Prime Minister's announcement was that our industry can return to work, actually, on Saturday the 1st of August. So luckily, um, we'll get back to work. But I think, you know, the government has been generous with their grants, their furloughing of salaries, um, you know, just in order to keep people at home and save the NHS to protect lives. But I feel that I'm in a, a position, because I've worked for 15 years, um, that I'm probably in a better position than more. So I do feel that I've weathered the storm, but that doesn't mean to say that it's, it's been an easy, you know, an easy time at all, uh, because mm. it hasn't. Of course, it's been a very difficult time for many. And you mentioned there that that amount of experience that you've had in the uh, the business world, that sort of ethos that you have as well has held you in good stead to deal with the challenges that have been brought up around about this time. Um, so, Jill, could you perhaps tell us just a little bit more about that sort of leadership model and business ethos that you've implemented at Absolute Image? Yeah, um, the business ethos that I have really is, as a nurse, first and foremost, um, is to offer a safe, sort of honest, quality treatment for my clients um, in a clean environment. Um, you know, that, that comes from my nursing days as a theatre nurse, that was apparent. But um, but obviously now it's going to have to be, you know, safe distancing in the workplace, safe appointments, it's going to have to be one in, one out almost. 
Um, obviously, the, the cleaning is essential. You know, the um, purifiers, the hand washing, the temperature taking, all very different. But it's just something that, you know, that we're going to have to get used to using PPE. isn't going to be um, comfortable um, at work, but it's just going to be something that has to be done. It's something that we'll just have to live with, really, um, indefinitely, I would say. But um, it's, it's just what we have to do to keep ourselves and our staff safe really and there are some features of this sort of lockdown period that could end up being permanent parts of the way that business operates in this country as well and especially when we consider the long-term effect on your industry jill um it's going to affect the delivery of aesthetic treatments amongst other things isn't it so there are going to be some changes for you even when things begin to resume as normal yeah, I mean, there are going to be changes, but, you know, really, if, if our treatments are done properly um, in the way that they should always have been done, um, we, you know, we clean in between clients, you know, just it, it's just the norm. It's something that we have to do. Obviously, that's going to have to be done um, with cleaning time, settling time, um, but, but it's something that we should always do. So it's, it's nothing new to us. It's just going to be done in a much more rigid sort of way. Um, you know, the social distancing between people, you know, once upon a time, people would come in and they'd have a nice coffee, they'd read a magazine and they'd relax. But really, it's just getting in and getting out. It's, it, it certainly is going to be a different field to clients when they come into, um, come into the clinic. But it's just something that, you know, we have to live with. And for how long? I think perhaps really forever. It's just something that we have to get used to the perspex at reception when you go in it's, it's not what you see generally but you know that's what we've been up to in um, the lockdown period and trying to get hold of such things perspex mm. you know seven week waiting list not necessarily easy but it's just essential to get back to work so all of the things that we have to do you know if you want to go back to work that is you just have to adhere to it and of course, in the healthcare professions, the procurement of personal protective equipment has been a global challenge and a very well documented one at that. But still, it's a necessary one to try and get over in order to continue to sort of reopen and operate safely. So in terms of provision of PPE, just how have you found it over the last few months um, as well in preparing for services to resume as normal? Yeah, it's been quite difficult actually getting hold of PPE um, initially, um, although it's a lot easier now. But because of the uncertainty as to whether we would be returning to work in you know, weeks ago or months ago um, or not, it, we, I didn't really like to get hold of it too quickly because obviously the NHS needed it. Um, so, you know, I was trying to leave a little bit of a leeway, but then it became something that I thought I really can't go back to work without. So it has actually been quite difficult to get hold of and it's much more expensive than it ever was before, but it's just essential. So it was just a case of, you know, by hook or by crook, we needed it. And um, and yeah, we had to have it. Um, in as much as the perspex sheeting, you know, we're talking sort of mm. seven weeks delivery time just to get hold of it. But um, the visors, you know, the visors, the gloves, the masks, all essential, the aprons and gowns, they haven't actually been uh, easy to acquire. But luckily, because of the time that's gone on, you know, I'll, I have everything now. Um, and it, yeah, it was just announced that we can go back to work on the 1st of August. So yeah, just getting our sort of final stages prepared really to, uh, to get back to work. 
And it's taken an immense amount of leadership during this time to try and chart a course through this unprecedented crisis. And part of the whole reason we're here, Jill, is, of course, to talk about leadership and bring that into focus somewhat. So I'm interested to understand what you feel a leader actually is. What does that word leader mean to you and what should a leader be in your eyes? Yeah, um, well, I think leadership, um, first and foremost, I think integrity comes to mind. You know, someone who can give good guidance. Um, I think influential as well. I think someone that's influential. Um, I think they have to have empathy as well. Um, be able to delegate, I guess. Um, just perhaps a good awareness, self-awareness. Um, but really just be a good role model, I think, uh, first and foremost, really. And with regards to the leadership that the government has shown during the COVID-19 situation, it's of course come under immense debate given heavy criticism every single day about just how clear certain guidelines have been and continue to be throughout the uh, the crisis. Um, what's your take on that? Have you been satisfied throughout that you've known exactly what's been expected of you? Yes, I think so. Um, I do think government um, were bombarded, and I think it was a little unfair. Um, you know, daily initially, not so much now, but daily. You know, it, it, you felt sorry for them. They were just under heavy bombardment, and obviously for them, it was new as well. It was a pandemic. You know, nobody was aware of, of what was going on initially. But I think they actually, you know, they did the right thing. I think they did everything that they could do. And there's always going to be things that they perhaps may well have said, oh, maybe we should have done this at that particular time. But I think they've done very, very well. I think, you know, they they don't get any thanks or gratitude uh, for what they do. But, you know, I think that, yeah, they got heavy criticism. And I think it was a little uncalled for, to be honest. And finally, Jill, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme uh, today, um, what do you think is next on the horizon for you and for Absolute Image, particularly over the next 12 to 18 months as we adjust to the challenges of the new normal that everybody's talking about? And also, what do you really hope to achieve during that period? Um, I would like to say I'd like to achieve getting back to normality, but I don't know that there's going to be um, a normality as we knew it before. I think it will it will change because of what we have to do to protect our clients and ourselves, obviously, um, in the future. But it would just be nice to get back to work, um, you know, from from the first of August. But yeah, the changes we just have to live with with the PPE, the you know, the safe distancing, just all of the things that we need to do to keep our clients safe. It's just, it's not really up for discussion. It's just, it's essential. It's just something that, you know, goes without saying. It's just something that will be um, the norm in, in our industry. Um, and I would say forever, really. I don't think that will change um, in the foreseeable future. So really, we're just looking forward to getting back to work um, and just being able to see our clients again and, and treat them because, you know, they're uh, they're desperate at this stage. <laughs> Mm, exactly and it's going to be a very interesting uh, few months ahead because there are still a great many variables in this in the sense that we don't know just which way the economic recovery is going to go we also don't know whether there will be a second wave of cases in the winter which is a great um, of course um, issue which is still to uh, sort of become a little bit clearer Um, but it's one thing actually speculating about what might come along um, in the future Jill and it's another actually looking back when the time comes and assessing what's gone on so I think it would be wonderful to have you back on the show 
going future with us just to see what has changed in the time between and assess where we're at at that point and also just to catch up on how things at Absolute Image are getting on as well. That would be lovely. That would be great. But um, could I just say a huge thank you for having me on the show, Scott? Uh, My pleasure. Thank you. It's been wonderful having you with us, Jill. And do also take care and do stay safe with all still going on until we do hopefully touch base again. It's been a pleasure having you join us today. Thank you. I was speaking today to Jill Tate of Absolute Image and coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of course, a prominent former Labour MP and Secretary of State. In fact, during his political career, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most renowned politicians of his generation holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I do hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods, uh, 
certain services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. 
But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. 
And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. I I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, 
what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us 
to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? 
Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that 
as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.